these observations are really good because they get our mind at the mode of understanding really what is the depth that God is showing us in his word. And um, the Bible is not just a uh, is not just a textbook. It's not just a book written across cultures from the ancient world. Uh, it is a it is a living and breathing uh, word of God. It is the living and breathing word of God, uh, sharper than any double edged sword. Hebrews says uh, there's a sense in which we feel the aliveness of God's word when we read it over and over and see uh, new things by the Spirit, new insights that come uh, as we interact with God's word and sit in uh, a posture of faithful submission to. And so this is a good thing for us to take this posture and just to wonder about God's word. Uh, the, God's word is not like one of your uh, Bible study devotionals where there's blanks and there's sentences and God tells Jonah to do uh, this, preach to the Ninevites. We're not looking for question and answers about how to interact with God's word. We are desiring to come under its authority and be influenced and shaped by it as the living word of the Lord for us. What a privilege and what an honor that we have. Uh, as recipients of that. And this morning, uh, what I want to do just again uh, for another week is we've kind of been looking at the story broadly rather than really narrowly and just turning the gemstone and looking at a new theme and a new element of Jonah. And this morning, like I said, I want to look at the, uh, the, the concept and the idea of mission in Jonah's story. Uh, we've looked at over the last several weeks how Jonah really in this kind of strange page and a half narrative in the middle of the Old Testament is actually a really surprisingly sophisticated story that weaves together so many of the elements and storylines that we see in God's word and puts them into a small digestible package that uh, has a big impact for us. We see these narratives and themes woven together with just really a surprising depth, but what really is central to Jonah is this plot that God is calling Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. That is the central plot and central theme of Jonah. So we can do a lot of work kind of dancing around on the edges and looking at all of these things, and that's helpful uh, to see the various dimensions. But really this kind of central plot and central storyline of Jonah that is important is that God is calling him to preach to the city of Nineveh. And I think more broadly, uh, this kind of micro-representation of God's calling for Jonah to go preach to the city of Nineveh is representative of kind of a meta-narrative, maybe a more macro-level understanding of God's word that he's calling his people to belong to his mission. God is calling his people to belong to his mission to reach those who are far off from him, to reach the nations. What I want us to see this morning is that we can identify with the story of Jonah, uh, not in some narcissistic or egocentric kind of way, uh, but in recognizing that there is something of a pattern represented in Jonah that is represented throughout the Bible that we belong to along with Jonah, and that's that we are being called out of our narrow lives of self-interest and self-direction and into a belonging to the mission of God to take part in his mission to the world. As we saw a few weeks ago, I mentioned this, uh, belonging to God's mission has been knit into the DNA of God's people from the beginning, uh, from the blessing of Abraham that we see in Genesis chapter 12, so that he might be a blessing to the nations, to the great commission that Jesus says after he has uh, been crucified and raised from the dead, to go and make disciples of all nations. We've been pointed to see that God desires to make himself known, and he desires to do that through the people who claim him. He desires to do that through his people, his church. However, as we can see in Jonah's story, it isn't always that simple. 
You see, God is calling us to belong to his mission. But when that meta-narrative meets our moment, we recognize that it's often not that easy for us to grasp that idea or to really rally around that with our lives. It's not always simple for God's people to recognize and participate in this calling in a way that probably feels way too familiar for all of us. Jonah has to wade through a complicated uh, web of competing desires and mixed emotions, impulses, and underlying presuppositions about God and about other people. And my thesis kind of for our time this morning is that in order for Jonah to reach the city, that is to faithfully belong to God's mission, it is required of him that he confront things not only out there in the world, but in himself also. In order for Jonah to reach the city, it required him to not only confront things out there in the world, but things in himself also. And so what I want us to do this morning uh, is just invite us to look into the mirror of Jonah's story and ask the question, what will it take for us to reach the city? What will it take for us, Church of the Redeemer, to reach the city? What will it take for us as individuals and collectively as a church to faithfully belong to the mission of God, to reach those who are far off? And so what I want to do this morning, uh, this is my humble and perhaps feeble attempt to analyze a couple of things. Uh, to analyze our cultural moment uh, and also the state of the church at large to suggest a way forward. Uh, So what I want to do is just kind of pull these things into focus for us this morning and really just kind of apply and glean wisdom um, from what God is teaching us through the story of Jonah, looking at what is happening in the culture and in our world today and what is happening in the church, the big C church, the church at large. And I want to just suggest to you humbly uh, a way forward for us, some things that I think are important. Uh, So I want to ask the question and revolve around this. What will it take for Redeemer to reach the city? What will it take for Redeemer to reach the city? The first suggestion I have is this. One, it will require a convictional movement from anxiety to possibility. In order for Redeemer to reach the city, it requires in us a convictional movement from anxiety to possibility. You see, for many Christians, when we think about reaching the world, it brings up in us really probably a mix of feelings that are not so unfamiliar to what Jonah felt when God called him uh, to preach this message of judgment to the city of Nineveh. Uh, While modern America is nothing like the city of Nineveh, I want to make that clear, it's nothing like the cruelly violent and oppressive Nineveh. At the same time, it's not so different in the sense that uh, it's a place where God is not honored and the people of God are not comfortable, or at least they shouldn't be, right? So there are some similarities in that regard that we kind of have a Nineveh, uh, forgive my uh, boldness in that, that we kind of have a calling, we have a city to reach, and it's not so unfamiliar. A lot of times probably it conjures in us some feelings not unlike what Jonah uh, felt. Because as we look around our world today and we look at the culture that we uh, belong to and swim in as people trying to be faithful to God in a world that isn't, uh, we look around us and just honestly see rampant wickedness. We look around us in the world and see rampant wickedness, and that can settle us into a certain anxiety. Anxiety about the world, anxiety about what this means for us. Anxiety of the outcome, not only of our interactions, but of our lives and lives of our children and our church. You see, we are 
situated in a time that rightfully feels a little bit backwards to us, if we are honest. We live in a time where racial tension feels like an inevitability, where the exploitation of the poor by the wealthy and greedy corporations is just capitalism making for us a good economy. We live in an age where institutional trust is eroded by corruption and scandal. And I'm not just talking about politically on the right or the left. I'm talking about politically on the right and left and everywhere in between. We live in an age where the genocide of the unborn is celebrated as freedom and progress. We live in a time where radical gender theory is infecting the minds and maiming the bodies of our youth, particularly adolescent girls. We look around at our world and say, what is happening What is happening with our world? We look around and see a time of division and moral decay that is happening not only in the lives of people around us, but in society at large at rates more rapid than we could have ever imagined. And that might lead us to ask the question, what are we to make of this city that God has called us to reach? What are we supposed to do with this city that God has called us to reach? What are we supposed to do with this Babylon, this Nineveh, that does not honor God, that does not have a place for us as Christians trying to honor God, and actively celebrates and pursues things that are opposite of God, things that are dishonoring to God, representing lives that are far from him. And like Jonah, maybe you look around and see the wickedness of this world and you lose a little bit of heart. Maybe like Jonah, you see what's happening in our culture and in the world at large, and you are inclined towards fear and trepidation, maybe towards a certain anxiety. You fear the outcome, not only of your life, but of our world. And maybe you wonder to yourself, maybe subconsciously, how could this world ever turn to God? How could this world, how could my neighbors who are living lives in one direction now change and live lives the opposite direction and live their lives for God? How could this world ever be reached and turn towards God? And friends, I think that that's where the story of Jonah Jonah invites us to see in this story something that is true of our own story. It invites us to believe in the possibility of God's mercy. It invites us to believe in the possibility of God's mercy, not to ignore our senses or pretend that the world isn't awash in wickedness because it is, but instead to believe that in the midst of that, it isn't too far for God's mercy to reach. There is no one, there is no people, there is no culture, there is no, there is no city, there is no community, there is no nation that is too far for the mercy of God to reach. As my favorite writer Richard Sibb said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that's not just sin in us, but sin in us, all of us. There is more mercy and none are too far for God's mercy to reach. Friends, I want you to see that in the story of Jonah, the biggest miracle isn't that he marshaled half the forces of nature or sent a big fish to swallow his reluctant prophet. The greatest, the greatest miracle in the story of Jonah is that God could cause a hardened nation who loved their sin to turn from their idolatry and to walk in his ways. That's the miracle, to get the heart to change. And God did that. Jonah reminds us that believing in the possibility of God's mercy is not just wishful thinking, 
It's not just something that church planners and uh, little church basements like this do so that we can rally the troops around uh, growing our church and reaching this city and and winning this nation and all of these uh, triumphalistic things that we say. It's not just wishful thinking or blind ambition. Rather, it is a conviction in the power of God's redemptive work in the world. If he has done it, friends, he can do it again. If he has done it before, he can do it again. And here's why I think that's important. You see, for us as Christians, like I said, I'm trying to do a little bit of cultural analysis and also analysis of the church at large as well. Here's why that's really important for you. Here's why that's really important for us here at Redeemer. Because if we don't believe in the possibility of mercy in our world, then we will become either immobilized or radicalized by our anxiety and fear. Either we will be immobilized by the fear of worldliness, the way that worldliness might shape us or shape our children and become stagnant. Or we will become radicalized by the sense that the world is just too far for saving and we might as well give up and either withdraw from it and head for the hills or wage war with it. Waging war with the world that God has come to save. Friends, I want us to see this morning that both of these postures that we see represented in the church today grow out of the same disbelief that God can and will show mercy. God can and will show mercy that God can turn a nation and a people to himself. Friends, Jonah invites us to see and to believe in the possibility of God's mercy. Even when we think it's impossible. Jonah invites us to see that God breaks down strongholds in cultures, in people, that he moves and shapes the hearts of mankind, that he can change a people, that he can change a place, that he can shape a moment for his purposes and for his glory. Uh, Lindsay noted at the very beginning as we were looking through this passage that she was just in awe of God's sovereignty. We see that all across scripture. That God bends the hearts and will of men. God does not bow down to the hearts and will of men. God holds them in his hand along with ours as well. God is sovereign. He is powerful. He is capable. And Jonah invites us to believe in the possibility of God's mercy for a world that we might think is too far gone, that we might think is too hard to reach, for neighbors that we have trepidation and fear about interacting with on these things, for fear that it might expose in us some vulnerability or weakness in our faith or in our belief. No, we have to believe as we see Jonah that God, uh, that God is greater than these things, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, and that in, in his sovereignty and in his power, he invites us to join in his mission and believe not in our own abilities and not in our own skills and not in our own arguments and not in our own tactics, but in his power to change the hearts and will of men and to show mercy to people that we think aren't worthy of it, to people that we think are too far. That's why Jonah invites us, and I think it's important for us to see that in order for us to reach the city, we have to move from anxiety about our world to hope for our world. We have to move from anxiety about our world to hope for our world, to know God's mercy and grace. The second thing, my second suggestion, is this. In order for us to reach our city, we need, an, a, we need a realignment of our ministry to the mission of God. Here's what I mean by that. We need a realignment of our ministry to the mission of God. 
in our confusing and distracted age, it is so easy for churches, and not just churches out there, but this one also to be mission disoriented. Not mission oriented, but mission disoriented. And what I mean by that is there are so many good things that churches can do. We can have small groups. We can have theological education classes. We can have Bible studies. We can, we can feed the, we can feed the uh, hungry and clothe the naked and help the poor and all of these things. We have all of these things that we can do that often we crowd out our vision with things that we can do and forget what we must do. You see, the Bible shows us that from the beginning of man's rebellion called sin. By the way, I'm not suggesting we not we shouldn't do or not must do all of those things that I just mentioned. But uh, from the very beginning, uh, what we see in the Bible, uh, the beginning of man's rebellion called sin, God has been writing the story of redemption. And never far from that story is the invitation for God's people to belong to his mission, to reconcile a lost and dying world to himself. Friends, I want us to see this morning that belonging to the mission of God is the essence of what it means to be the people of God. Belonging to the mission of God is the substance, the essence of what it means to be the people of God. It is the essence, the substance of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The reality is that we can become distracted by enjoyable and good things because if everything we do in our lives and in our churches, uh, I want us to see if those things are not oriented towards the mission of God, then we are just wasting our time and perhaps doing a few good works along the way. And I'm trying to be delicate about how I say that. You see, we desire formation into the image of Jesus. This is the trajectory for our lives as followers of Jesus to become like him. And at the same time, we desire to belong to a good biblical community that encourages us to that end. But friends, what I want us to see and consider this morning is that if all of these things are not aimed after and faithful to the mission of God that he has called us to participate in, then they are a waste of time. Because it isn't formation that we want, because that's not the Jesus we're being formed into. Because it isn't community that we want, because it isn't the community that's living their lives in submission to God's mission. If it's not these things and it's not something that we want, then they aren't faithful. We need a realignment of our ministry to the mission of God. Uh, The third thing I want us to consider this morning is that in order to reach the city, uh, what we need right now as Redeemer is a transformative love for the other. What we need is a transformative love for the other. Friends, I want us to see from Jonah that reaching the city that is belonging to the mission of God, requires a self-displacing, spirit-empowered, gospel-saturated love for those we might otherwise think of as the other, but are dearly loved by God. I love in Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, that when God describes Nineveh to Jonah, the Ninevites that he hates, by the way, the Ninevites who cruelly oppressed and harmed and killed his people, That when God describes the Ninevites in chapter 4, verse 11, he describes them as being a city, a great city, by the way, of more than 120,000 people, for whom he has compassion, if you look in verse 11, because they do not know their right hand from their left. That the same people Jonah sees through the lens of anger, hatred, frustration, with bigotry, with vitriol in his heart, God sees with compassion. 
a city of 120,000 people, image bearers, made to look like and honor God, who sinned against him, just like we did, by the way, who sinned against him and who, on whom God has compassion because they don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they don't know what they are doing. They don't realize the brokenness that they walk in. They don't realize the error of their ways. No one has told them. No one has showed them. You see, Jonah confronts us with a glory, glorious reality that we are often reticent to believe. That God's mercy is for people who we in our sin are not inclined to love. I'm going to say that again. God's mercy is for people who we in our sin are not inclined to love. God's mercy is for people who don't share our culture, who don't have the same skin color, who have different political views than our own, whose bank account has a different amount of commas than what ours has, who do not share our moral vision for the good life and including people who hate and have wronged us. God's mercy is for them. That's why Jesus teaches us in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18 that a real encounter with the mercy of God should produce and shape in us a mercy for people who, like us, are in need of God's mercy. It should cause us to recognize that in light of God's mercy for our lives, we don't have a stone to throw at people who hate us and despise us and think differently than us and who we think are deceiving people and who we think belong to an old world that is passing away God's mercy is still for those people for us to embody this transformative love for the other in a world that is training us to be divided it requires that we reject every allegiance and every identity that we place before Jesus it requires that we displace every allegiance and every identity that we put before the word Christian Any other word, like conservative Christian, or progressive Christian, or Jesus Christian, or democratic Christian, or conservative Christian, or Republican Christian, or any other word that we put before the word Christian, which is a sinful and demonic attempt to mix the way of the world with the way of Jesus. In order to have a self-displacing love for the other, to see them with the eyes of God and in light of God's mercy for them that is available if they turn to him, it requires that we see beyond these silly allegiances, see beyond these silly things that we make idols of in our own heart in the name of Jesus. Instead, belonging to the mission of God requires that we have the love of God for those that we are not inclined to love. And if we do not have that love for them flowing from our hearts to go before the Lord in humility and ask him to shape in us a love for people that we hate, for people that we disagree with, we're not trying to win arguments. We're not trying to pick sides. We're trying to proclaim a message of mercy to a world that is dying that needs to hear it. How dare we waste our time trying to make conservative Republican Christians or progressive liberal Christians? How dare we waste our time focusing on the health of the American Christians? How dare we waste our time focusing on our specific tribes? How dare we do any of these things in light of the urgency of God's call on our life 
to belong to his mission and proclaim this message of judgment and mercy. Judgment against the sin of the world, yes, but the wonderful, incredible mercy of God in Jesus Christ that they can receive if they call upon his name. We can't put up barriers for those things. We don't have time to make mountains out of molehills. We don't have time to let these identities steal our attention and steal our time away from our mission. We need to be shaped by a radical love and mercy of God for those we might otherwise know as other. The last thing I think that we as Redeemer need in order to reach the city is a faithful proclamation of the whole gospel. When Jodah went to the city of Nineveh, turn with me chapter 3. I'm going to point out a couple of things that I don't want you to miss. When Jonah went to the city of Nineveh, there was a wholeness to the message that he preached. Look in verse, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, but this is the Ninevites speaking. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. That passage tells us that Jonah... There was a wholeness to the message that Jonah preached because he was calling people not just to believe in some ethereal concept called sin, that they have angered some faraway God and are experiencing the consequences of his wrath that they do not see or do not experience. No, Jonah preaches a holistic understanding of God's judgment of sin. He points the Ninevites to see that God has wired into his world a judgment of sin such that if we do not live the way that God has called us to, we experience the effects of that judgment called sin in the brokenness of our world, in the brokenness of our relationships and in creation. He's pointing them to see that the brokenness that they see in their lives, the evil that they experience, that they must know because they're acknowledging it here, is due to a real thing called sin. Because God has designed them for another way. And then it says also, if you look up in verse 5, he calls them to turn away from their evil and violence, and they do so. It says in verse 5, everyone from the greatest down to the least, which I think likely indicates how Jonah was acknowledging the cruel and oppressive social stratification that existed in their city. That there was an exploitation of the poor and the weak and vulnerable in a, in a clear celebration and love for those who were wealthy and those who were in power. And Jonah is pointing to these social structures and to these systems at the macro level at work in their society and in their government and also in the micro level of their own lives, the wickedness and violence that is on their own hands as individuals. Tim Keller points out that these indications that we see in chapter 3, they're not It doesn't say Jonah preached this kind of message and they responded this way, but Tim Keller points out that these are indications that Jonah must have been preaching a very holistic message of grace and salvation to these people. Not only did he preach a message of conceptual sin and God's mercy, but he helped them to see and to follow a way that was better with their own, a way that that aligned with the excellency of God and the way that he has created this world, that helped them to see their lives and their behavior in light of God's creation and the fall and also of his mercy as well. He helped them to see beyond just a simple message of sin and repentance to what that looked like practically in their lives to turn from their evil ways and from their wickedness and to follow God and why that mattered and the fruits that those things produced. Here's why I think that's important uh, for us. Uh, In the church, church at large, there are two sometimes unhelpful impulses, two sides. I don't like two sides, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
One, there is the side of the church that wants to let our vision of mission only be doing quiet acts of kindness. And essentially, our vision for mission, belonging to the mission of God, can only be doing quiet acts of kindness and help, clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and helping the homeless and these things. It can only be quiet acts of kindness because before we preach the gospel, we got to show the gospel, right? I'm not going to say that that's a wholly unhelpful impulse, but it can be. And on the other side, what we see in the church is often people who are quick to preach this bold message of judgment with no vision for how it meaningfully intersects the lives of those who hear it. And even when asked, they come up with nothing. You see, the side that emphasizes acts of justice and mercy are often timid to speak boldly about God, about his judgment for sin, about his will for the world and for their lives. And the side that emphasizes bold preaching is not usually known for having a holistic vision of God's mercy and justice in their churches, in their lives, and in their practice. This is a problem, right? Because likely you, trained Bible scholars as you are, because you sit under incredible teaching like this one, full of hubris and meaninglessness, know that something feels wrong about that. Does not God call us to all of these things? Does not God call us to boldly preach a message of justice, but also of mercy and an opportunity for repentance and to receive God's kindness? But also, doesn't he tell us to clothe the naked and, and, and help, the, help the sojourner and help, the, help those who are, who are hungry and in need, of, in need of our care, the weak and vulnerable among us? Does he not also call us to those things? And did not Jesus spend really a lot of his life doing kind of both of those things at the same time? Something feels a little wrong, but if you're honest and look at the church and analyze like me, you say, you know, that is kind of two neat categories that a lot of churches fit in. Uh, Tim Keller again points out how though many churches fail to hold these things in contention well, they are theologically inseparable. It is theologically inseparable to preach the gospel and not do the gospel. It is theologically inseparable to preach a message of mercy, divine forgiveness, and grace, but not embody and model the same mercy that showed up among us in Jesus Christ. They are theologically inseparable. If we desire to faithfully belong to the mission of God, it requires that we be committed to preaching and doing the whole gospel. That is not only being honest and bold and clear about God and his judgment for sin. If we pull that away from our ministry, if we pull that away from our witness, not only in our lives, but in our church, we are doing people a massive disservice. This one might prick your ears a little bit, but someone told me this uh, one time. We might just be committed to making a world more comfortable for people to go to hell from. If we don't tell them the truth and point them to the reality of their sin and the real consequences of that sin and eternal separation from God which is judgment for that sin and invite them to the grace of Jesus we can't pull that from our witness we can't pull that from our words but at the same time preaching the whole gospel is not just preaching these things boldly and honestly but preaching and demonstrating a compelling vision for how the gospel not only forgives but redeems and restores a broken world broken by sin it not only preaches this message honestly, it not only preaches this message boldly, but it shows how this gospel is redemption and restoration for a world that is broken by sin. And so for that reason, as we think about these things this morning, I want to just submit to you uh, that 
as we think about that fourth idea of needing to preach a whole gospel, that it ought to be an active aspiration. Uh, This is a term that probably somebody else coined, but I'm using right now, and I've never heard it anywhere else. But it ought to be an active aspiration for us, right? It's not only a thing that we conceptually believe that we want to preach a whole gospel, we not only want to preach the gospel, but do the gospel, right, in our lives and in our churches and in our circles, Uh, but we also need to be constantly recognizing where that's not true where we kind of rest on our laurels and sit on our heels and say, we do these things, we wholly represent and show this gospel of Jesus Christ, but really we don't. Where we say it in word, but do not do it in deed, and where we do it in deed, but do not say it in word. And for these reasons, I think that for our church, this needs to be an active aspiration, something that we work towards and commit to and orient around together as people. And church, I, I, again, I say this this morning, uh, offering these suggestions. These are my feeble attempts to kind of uh, cross-analyze what is happening in our world and in the church and just suggest a way forward for our church. I don't think it's representative or necessarily a complete list. I don't even necessarily think that I'm right, that these ought to be missional emphases for our church. But I'm at least convinced that what I see uh, from Jonah And what I see at work in our church and in our world is that these things ought to be true among us. I believe that. I believe that we ought to be committed to these things. I believe that we ought to have this convictional uh, belief in the possibility of God's mercy. I believe that we ought to be aligned around the mission of God and be practicing uh, love for the other. That we ought to be faithfully proclaiming the whole gospel. I believe that these things are true. Uh, Because these are the things that ultimately we see in the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus as well. Jonah curiously points ahead to something that was beyond his time in that way. And I think this is the work that Jesus calls us to, not only his church globally, but us here and now. Uh, On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body broken for you. Really, the embodiment of mercy is a broken body. And especially when he took the cup of the covenant and said, This is my blood shed. For you, he was showing them what the mercy of God poured out and broken for them looked like. And what they couldn't imagine is the next day that Jesus would hang on the cross, that his body physically would be broken and that his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins, that that we might receive the mercy of God that he came proclaiming, that we might belong to and embody and live in this kingdom that he came to announce its arrival. And on the night Jesus betrayed, he gave this, to, this meal to his disciples and really invited them uh, to step into this gospel reality that he was preaching. And he invites us to that this morning as well. The Apostle Paul instructs us that every time we gather, uh, we should eat this meal and drink this drink, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Uh, friends, this is a uh, liturgy of the gospel in a certain sense, that we are invited to remember the broken body of Christ for us and his bloodshed. Not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, the Bible tells us. Not the world as we see it, not the world as we conceptualize it, but to anyone who would hear and call upon the name of Jesus. That's our conviction this morning. So this morning, I I just ask as we approach this time of conviction, or of of communion, ask God to convict your heart of where you are out of alignment with the mission of God. Ask God to grow in our church and imagination for what it looks like for us to faithfully step into the mission of God and reach this city. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you do not take this meal. Instead, our plea is that you take Christ. This mercy of God that we talk about here this morning uh, can be yours if you call upon his name. In a moment, I'll pray. Take the moment that you need. Uh, At your chairs, you can come forward and receive the elements and then return to your seats and remain standing for another song of worship. Let's pray.
Father, we acknowledge that you are great and greatly to be praised. You are worthy of our affection, of our adoration, of our allegiance. But Father, we fail you often. We fail you daily. But Father, you have sent your Son to be the propitiation of sins for us, to take our place, to die on the cross that we might receive your mercy and forgiveness when we did not earn it and did not deserve it. Father, we are we are humbly recognizing that reality this morning, that we are recipients of a grace that is beyond ourselves. Father, as one of our saints here this morning, I can't even remember who it was, said as we read through your word here this morning, there's a tendency to want to hold on to this grace that we have been given, to see ourselves as the center of the world, to see ourselves as the center of your affection. And Father, in a sense, we are. Father, we believe from your word that when you see us, it's like we're, as one saint said, the only man in the world. That you love us in that way personally and with kindness and gracious and generosity with your presence and time. But Father, help us to see and be convicted of the reality that we see in your word that you came to claim a people, not a person, but a people. That it's glorious, true, gloriously true that you claimed a person in us, but that there is a people that you have called us to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, convict us of that this morning. Help us to set aside any allegiances or unhelpful impulses that keep us from that. Help us to set aside any barriers that we place in the way of that. Help us to be obedient to your mission. To Christ's name we pray. Amen.